Part of the challenge is medical biological sciences look down on the social sciences. I'm just putting it out there. And that includes communication. And there's a science to effective communication. There's a science of marketing and NPR. Yet doctors and, and academicians and others will think it's just talking, right? We all talk. I'll just talk to the patient and it's fine. And if they don't understand me, it's, it's their fault. Welcome to Health Unabashed, the show that is unapologetically passionate about innovation as a catalyst for improving care. Hosted by digital health advocate, influencer, and author Gil Bash, the show looks at the thought-provoking ideas, people, and companies who are making a difference. I'm your co-host, Greg Masters, and I'll be joining Gil as he and his guests share opinions and best practices on how to connect the dots to create sustainable change. Learn more about the show on the program page at healthcarenowradio.com. Now let's hear from Gil on what's in store for today's episode. So Greg, it's it's a, it's a, always a thrill to be with you, my friend. Uh, Greg, as you know, is host of his own program called Pop Health. He is passionate about public health, population health, and uh, is one of the great programs on Healthcare Now Radio. And um, he and I have always been sort of going back and forth on this tension of the gaps in care and the gaps of information in the nation. And, and John, uh, I have been uh, a fan of yours for way back when. And just thinking about when COVID initially hit, before we called it COVID-19, it was the pandemic at, at that point, you know, the name that has sort of gone into the shadows I was asked by media, who were my go-to sources of information? And you, you, you may or may not remember. I said, well, I actually have only maybe three or four uh, go-to sources for, for information on, on uh, COVID-19, on the pandemic. And you were one of those less than a handful sources. And uh, you still are, by the way. You have not changed. You've not disappointed. So I... I ask you a question that I've been asked. I was on a national panel, global panel, uh, that asked me recently, um, is the world prepared for the next pandemic? And I definitively answered, well, based on my experience with the pandemic we're in the midst of, the answer is no. But I have a different related question for you that I've, I've been really eager to ask. And I also want to ask about your new book, by the way. But let's wait a moment. Your role in this nation uh, you've been on television, MSNBC and Fox News and many other news stations. I did want to ask you about science. I wanted to ask you as a public health expert, someone who came out of FDA, was at the Discovery Channel, was at WebMD, who understands that communication go hand in hand. What's your prescription for our nation in terms of how we communicate about public health risk, not how we treat public health risk? Any insights? I think communication around the pandemic has one of the has been one of the biggest traditionally people would just accept what government officials would say or what our doctors would say and because of the internet and this is a good thing that people were able to empower themselves with information but information isn't knowledge in many cases during this pandemic, the information has been wrong. And when we looked to our nation's leaders, there was conflicting information. It was 
changing and, and that's okay. But they didn't explain why it needed to change. At first, we didn't need to wear masks. Then we did. We didn't explain the concept of breakthrough infection well enough. What I learned from working in the government, you would want to issue a press release, like 30 people would touch it. That is not the way to communicate information. It's bad enough as scientists, as public health experts, and we think everyone understands what we're saying. You have 20 people review it. At the end, you think, how does this make sense? And how did no one down with regular people who had no interaction with the information and get them to explain it back? Remember the issue of wearing masks inside. It doesn't make any sense. I'll hold that for a second. Oh, I, I totally. It changes every two seconds. So, you know, I, I hope you don't mind my saying this. I think you have a superpower. It comes out with these wonderful photographs of you and your wife and your boys out on the front lawn. You combine information with emotion. You understand the importance of doing that. And I, I wanted to ask, are scientists trained and skilled to actually lead the charge of giving us direction around things like COVID-19? Or do you think people like yourself really have to be empowered, maybe even pulled out of, heaven forbid, WebMD, but pulled out for a bit to do national service and to actually lead the charge as um, communicators who connect not to our heads, but to our head, heart, and gut? And I felt that was lacking. I mean, what's your point of view on that? People that go into science and academics, I, I, I'm being stereotyping somewhat, you know, don't necessarily want to interact with people most of the day. They're interacting with data and other scientists, and they very much have this niche. They're not necessarily the ones that are going to be the best communicators. And then typically the people that do work in communications in the public sector aren't empowered enough to make decisions to say, this is actually how you should be saying it. They're really, in some ways, not to diminish the role, processing. They're, they're pushing paper around virtually for everyone to sign off on it. And they're so fearful of bringing in outside people that somehow the, the message might be compromised and they're not recognizing that it is. As you know, I still see patients. And I think that's been one of the bits to communicating, whether it's me communicating personally or the work that we do at WebMD, because I, I see it when I talk to patients and they're not understanding what I'm saying through no fault of their own. So I've learned how to talk to patients more effectively over 25, 30 years of doing it. And I don't think most people that go into scientific positions in, in research, the best communicators, then we're trying to put them out there to communicate complex messages to the public. And, and quite frankly, Gil, I think they make it way too complicated. I always say, if you need a flow chart to explain what we're <laughs> doing here, and they had flow charts, it seems, that's a problem. You have to keep it simple, much simpler. I'm going to sort of put out a dream that that uh, that you can carve out some time to go around to the great medical schools of our nation, because I think that um, I'm going to go deeper. And maybe I'm going to ask you about your book for a second. I, I often find that people with serious health conditions or even you know pre-surgery, that you know, the doctor is really so, I've seen this through my whole career. Doctors, you're the exception to the rule, by the way. 
doctors are so enamored with what they're going to do. They're really into the treatment that they sort of like they are as artists, as clinical artists, they perform. The, the sense of they're actually treating a human being who's who's anxious, frightened, uh, is wondering, like, after I leave the hospital from my uh, rotator cuff surgery, pain manager, how do I wear this brace? Do I have to wear it all the time? Doctors don't want to hear from that stuff. What they want to hear was, it was a great procedure. Now go away. I'm not sure they want to hear anything. Yeah, part of the challenge is the medical, the biological sciences look down on the social sciences. I'm just putting it out there. And that includes communication. And there's a science to effective communication. There's a science of marketing in, in PR. Yet doctors and, and academicians and others will think it's just talking, right? We all talk. I'll just talk to the patient and it's fine. And if they don't understand me, it's it's their fault. And that's where we're having major challenges. And we also talk down to people. We do it in medicine all the time. We interrupt them. We don't give them time to express their concerns. And we've done it during the pandemic. It's been focused on how do I talk to these people that are unvaccinated, that are unreasonable, where many of them, they're not making a political statement. They're doing it out of fear, their action and, and misinformation. And you and I have talked about, nobody thinks they're misinformed, right? So, so no, even if they're misinformed, no one thinks they are. They think they're right. So how do you engage in a mutually respectful way? That's how you change behavior, not by talking down to people and implying they're all omnipotent and they just don't know and have to accept what you say. That might have worked 20 years ago. doesn't work today. You know, I, to your point, I heard a great CNN segment maybe a week, a week and a half ago. It was a, a segment where they were interviewing a patient who met a, like this sounds like I walked into a bar and met a doctor. And this person who was, was a non-vaxxer, not an anti-vaxxer, a hesitant, um, anxious person about vaccines, into a doctor at a bar. The two of them have a two-hour conversation where the person, the consumer, says, challenges the doctor and he says, you know, I'll get a vaccine if you do it. The doctor says, you're on, and takes the person back to their office and gives them their first vaccination. There's a segment, like a 15-minute segment on CNN, interviewing the physician and the consumer um, and who went through the process. And, and I'm saying to myself, our, our medical system is not set up for conversation. It's set up for action. And, and I'm wondering if you've just given us a, um, a path forward on dealing with of uh, adherence, about self-care instead of sick care, about compassion care, about um, an environment where, where um, all of a sudden the health system feels it's designed to take care of people. I mean, what, what's your thought? Are, is, are we spending 18.7% of our GDP on healthcare, not because we need to, but because we're not willing to face the fact that our, our system is not a health system. Right. You, you, you know that. It's, it's, it's not a health system. We, we don't focus on prevention. We don't focus on the social determinants of health. We focus on you have uh, a rash, you have a mole, you have pain. How am I going to treat it? You have high blood pressure now. Not as much. How do I prevent you from getting 
blood pressure. And the system is set up in, in terms of that, how I code to get reimbursed. And, and there has to be, you know, you want to do a procedure or you want to talk to people. What are you going to get paid to do? You're going to get paid much more to do a procedure. You're going to get paid much more to treat hypertension than it is to talk about weight loss. And then there are some discussions around changing that. That's primarily as we're talking about the Medicare population, et cetera, it's harder to make some of those changes as we get older. And we don't focus enough on self-care. You know, I, I asked someone today, um, you know, I took him to your point about our health system. I said, have you ever seen a hospital burst for having no patients um, or a doctor's office with no people in the waiting room? That, that's not how our medical system makes money. And I was speaking to the head of another major hospital system outside the U.S., and he was saying that the governor of Massachusetts came to visit his medical institution, and, and he asked, how many doctors do you have per patient here? He says, I, I don't remember the exact number, but it was like a magnitude of 10 uh, like and less, like much less than than let's say uh, Massachusetts hospitals have, and yet the life expectancy is better, the 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 the, um, the cost is less, and people are living longer. And you know, I I'm just baffled by the fact that you and I have been talking about related issues forever, and yet things change. So I, you know, I'd like to ask you when you're going to be the secretary. of Human Services. That that was really the question I really want to ask President Biden, but. I'll have to wait. Yeah. I'm going to go back to Boston. Look, look or Massachusetts. You said Massachusetts. Look, look at Boston. You can't spit and not hit a teaching hospital. I mean, the density of amazing health systems is intense. Yet you go to certain areas of Boston, there's a 20-year life expectancy difference based on where people live on the T. You want to talk about healthcare? Since when does your zip code matter more than your genetic code? And how are we impacting that? That's the real problem in, in healthcare. And, and I think it comes back to what you were saying before, you know, Boston Medical Center, which is the safety net hospital for the Boston population. And, you know, I, I, I've been through those hallways and I'm really taken by the compassion that the, the healthcare professionals in those hallways have for the people they serve. Uh, you know, I find that they're to a different level. They're not sort of saying, let me prescribe these pills. They're, they're sitting down. And why does it take that to be a safety net system to understand that communication is part of the care? So I want to go to your book for a second, because there's a lot of information about cancer. And you're a national leader in the health system. You know, obviously, you're a chief medical officer of WebMD. You're really the um, a, a guiding force for, for that organization most trusted information source. And it's good to have a beacon of accuracy when we're dealing with so much stir. Why, why did you feel the need to put out that book? What was the driving source? You write many things. You have many articles. You've had op-eds in major newspapers. You've been working diligently and quietly on this book. It's just released. Maybe you have a copy you can show us. Um, I went, there you go. There you go. Take control of your cancer risk. And, and it's a preventive care book, which is kind of what we're talking about as well. Why did you feel we need the book? I'd be a bad author if I didn't have it right there. A couple of reasons why, Gil. The first was around the myth around cancer is primarily genetic. It's either because of family history or it's 
bad luck. And I saw it as patients started to do, do over-the-counter genetic tests and say, oh, I'm not at risk for cancer. Well, th there's many problems there, not just for the fact that these over-the-counter tests test very few um, cancers. Uh, but the reality is that only about 30% of cancer is caused by inherited mutations or genetics. The rest is primarily influenced by lifestyle. And although you can't prevent anything 100%, science tells us what we need to do to reduce our cancer risk. And as physicians, we don't do that. We talk to patients, how do you reduce your risk of diabetes? What do you need to eat? We created a whole new category for diabetes, pre-diabetes to prevent you from progressing to diabetes, heart disease. We talk about cardio, even the name implies how you're going to help your heart. But when it comes to cancer, I challenge listeners to find me one doctor who told them this is what you need to do to reduce your cancer risk. And when we talk about screening and screening is important, the sad truth is we can't screen most cancers. So you really need to take control and figure out how you're going to create your own personal cancer prevention program. The common theme that I hear from them is tell me what to do. Tell me what to eat. Tell me what exercise I should do. And I've struggled with that because there's no one size fits all. But what I've learned as a communicator, you can't have all these caveats, which is what academicians and others want to do. And it's not to disparage it, but no one's going to pay attention. And it's funny, I've written some other books and I always would want to write a lot of studies. It's almost like I'm telling the story. And I had great editors who'd be like, okay, that, that can go in the appendix. <laughs> Nobody wants to know. They're coming to you because they trust you. You're going to distill the information down to them for them and, and give them the salient points. They don't want to read all the studies. This is not a medical school lecture. But at the end, I have focused on here are actionable steps, right? They don't, no one wants a dissertation on the role of cortisol and sleep. It's, it's important to discuss. But then they want to know, well, what do I do? And, and, and that's what I wanted to focus on, you know, no one's talking about that in terms of preventing cancer. It's all about diabetes and heart disease. And that's important too. But a million people still get cancer every year, Gil. 600,000 people die of cancer every year, every year. It's a leading cause of death still. 50 years after they said they were going to you know, cure cancer, it's still a leading cause of death. You know, I'm, I'm listening to this and the book, of course, is magnificent. And I'm, I'm really wondering about the fact that you know primary care is wandering almost. We have a walk-in clinic mentality, whether it's you no know, retail center or emergency care centers that are opening up to deal with the rash, right? To deal with the pain. And, and nobody is owning the patient any longer. In the United Kingdom, the National Health Service, you have to have a primary care physician who's the, the coordinator of care. I once wrote um, in an article that I am my, I personally, Gil, is the archivist and coordinator of my care. Not, not out of a desire. I desire to have a trusting relationship. And I do have some specialists who are trusted clinicians who I go to, and they serve a little more of a primary care role at times. But I'm also worried about how we're um, burning out physicians, telling them nine minutes, nine minutes to see a patient. And what you're talking about is is actually sitting down with a patient who is gaining too much weight, 
forget about their prediabetes and their risk of hypertension. Their obesity also contributes specifically to certain cancer types. And we could go into the data, but we won't bore people. They'll read the appendices in the book. But how can a physician sit down and say, look, we need to talk about this because it's not just about the long-term danger. It's about some very scary stuff I want us to avoid. What I mean, what do you recommend? Our whole system is, is contributing actually to a cascade of non-communicable deaths. Part of the challenge is physicians don't know how to do this. They don't want to do it. They don't have the expertise. And that's partly why I wanted to write the book. What would doctors say? You need to lose weight. You need to go to the gym. You need to eat healthy. They don't give any guidance. And guess what? I don't have 30 minutes to explain to you what to do. And most physicians, there's been numerous studies on this. They don't understand nutrition. They don't give good nutrition advice. We learned this education. We created a whole new category of diabetes educators because we learned physicians were not doing a good enough job. And we created a process to, to pay for it, first for type 1 and then for type 2 diabetes. And in many ways, in terms of cancer, consumers are going to have to go to online resources and other resources to get good quality information. A few years ago, I had a patient uh, meet with me, and it, I wish we could do more of this. And she said she wanted to, this was just an interview. <laughs> like she wanted to see if we would have a good fit. Right. And I honestly, I was somewhat amused by it. I'm not sure if that's the right term. So, <laughs> but I did think, how am I going to code this? Like, I have to do something. But she was like, oh, I just wanted to talk to see if we'd be a good fit. And I thought, that, you know, in 25 years, I've never have experienced that. And, and I wish more people would do that because most of the time, people then just don't come back if they're unhappy or they find someone, but it takes a while. And why should they have to go? But the principle was an important one that she wanted to make sure that her doctor knew what was important to her, what were her priorities in terms of our health. And when do we do that? Never. It's our priorities as a doctor, what the system says. I need to get your A1C under control because that's how I'm going to be judged. And we don't talk about the ways, how do I improve the quality of your life? How do I make sure, you know, now we're talking about the social determinants of health. Most of my physician colleagues, like, I don't know how to assess food safety. I don't know how to assess these other issues. And I think we have to have a national conversation around that to see who's going to do that and do that well. We can't throw everything on the clinicians either, because there's just in the current model, not enough time to address it all. So I, 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 I hope you don't mind my asking. I want to have you back because I also want to ask you, a question. You see that we got this two minutes out. Um, but I also want to ask you, not today as we go forward, why is it that we have so much illness that breaks our hearts and breaks our budgets, and yet we're investing in the elementary school level, in the, in the primary school level, in the high school level, in the college level? We're not saying, you know what? We're dealing really with triage. We're dealing with critical care in public health education. We really should be dealing with preventive education. Let's start this dialogue when they're PK through 12 and invest in bringing young people into a healthy place. I, I just want to say, Dr. John White, you are a national treasure. I, I understand WebMD owns you, so to speak, and, that, and, and, and you're theirs. And, but for, I want to say thank you. Thank you so much 
for being bold and truthful, representing the hundreds of millions of people in this nation. Congratulations on this new book. I said, not in jest, maybe one day, Secretary Health and Human Services. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep that hope out there in the hopes that people will listen to this and they'll say, hmm, maybe get a point. Let's have them board. Before you run, people should go to Amazon or a bookstore or another service, Take Control of Your Cancer Risk by Dr. John White. New, hot off the shelves. I highly recommend it. It's a concern to all of us. And I think it's great to have this book out there finally. Dr. White, thank you so much for joining us. And Greg, thank you so much. Take care. It was my pleasure. Thanks for having me. And that's a wrap for today. We want to thank our listeners for taking the time to tune in. You can learn more about Health Unabashed on the program page at healthcarenowradio.com. And keep the conversation going with Gil and me on Twitter by connecting with us via at Gil underscore Bash and at Greg Masters MPH. And do tag your tweets with the hashtag Health Unabashed. Until next time, stay unapologetically passionate about improving health. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, over prohibited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.